Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Thanks for tuning into this episode of HPO. A few quick updates for the show before we get rolling. Coming up on the HPO is an interview I had with Sean Sakanowski. Sean is a very low carbohydrate or strict keto cyclist. I was interested in chatting with Sean to hear about his goals, lifestyles, experiences, etc. With staying classic keto low while sometimes cycling 500 plus kilometers per week and typically doing it on only about three sessions. I can't emphasize context enough when it comes to nutrition and lifestyle. Ultimately, everyone is presented with a unique set of variables to consider. It is why we have so much diversity in nutritional approaches and will likely never find a one-size-fits-all. We may find better starting points or better population-level recommendations, but at the end of the day, whatever approach you decide to take, it should be sustainable for you or the long-term implications might suffer. Sean fits this mold well. He has a specific lifestyle and has found a nutritional approach that works well within it that he can rely on and stick to and has been doing so for over nine years. For this reason, I wanted to hear more. So stay tuned for that episode to drop. If you are anxious to check it out, you can get your hands on it now through my Patreon page, which is also an ad-free experience. Episodes there start at $3 per month if you want to get it pre-release, or $1 per month once the episode has been released on all platforms. All right, today... I am joined by Jason Caldwell. Jason is an extreme athlete. When I think of extreme athletes, my mind goes towards endurance and ultra marathons. That's where my bias is, I guess. Uh, After speaking with Alex Wish for episode 256, I got a bit excited about extreme athletes that gravitate towards long duration events that have a bit more strength or full body usage. Jason was a great second look into this world. He has leaned into the extreme through rowing, oftentimes ocean rowing. Jason has rowed across the Atlantic Ocean twice, the second time breaking the world record as the fastest boat to ever row across the Atlantic, which took 35 days, 14 hours, and 3 minutes. The Namib Desert in Namibia is the oldest, driest, and most barren desert in the world. Because of this, it has earned the nickname by the indigenous population as the Gate to Hell, Jason put a team together to trek this desert unassisted in 2018. Away from the physical, through his company, LAT35, Jason delivers leadership programs and keynote speeches to organizations across the globe. To date, Jason has trained over 50 companies, written two books, and currently speaks at schools such as Wharton, Columbia Business School, Haas School of Business, and London Business School. The focal point or event of our discussion today is centered around a project where Jason and his three-man team recently rode from San Francisco to Hawaii in 30 days, 7 hours, and 30 minutes. The team rode 24 hours a day in two-man, two-hour shifts to smash the previous record by nine days. The record marked the 11th world record Jason has set. All right, folks, if you enjoyed this episode with Jason or any of my other episodes and wish to support, either monetarily or by liking, sharing, and subscribing, please head over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO for options. These options include joining my Patreon page, 
making a quick one-time donation, which includes options to avoid the need of joining a third-party platform, or by subscribing to HPO on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platform. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. Details on all the discounts and promotions from HPO show sponsors can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. These links can be found in the show notes as well. Sponsoring this episode, my friends at Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then, Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way toward reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life. For a limited time, Human Performance Outliers podcast listeners can get a big 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. I recommend checking out one of their blood panels. This can allow you to optimize any nutrient deficiencies in a targeted way. Just visit InsideTracker.com and enter the offer code capital HPOPRO25. That's capital HPOPRO25. Also, if you are a coach, trainer, registered dietitian, or other health and wellness practitioner, your gateway to offering your clients Inside Tracker is Inside Tracker Pro. You can earn revenue, enjoy discounts, and help your clients perform better than ever with Inside Tracker Pro. Please visit insidetracker.com forward slash HPO to get started if interested in that program. Also sponsoring this episode is Bioptimizers and their product Breakthrough Magnesium. It is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. I take two of these capsules before bed at night. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. As always, Bioptimizers offers their 360-day money-back guarantee, so you can try them out risk-free and see for yourself if they work for you. So you can head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code HUMAN10 to get 10% off your next order. Link and promo code is also in the show notes as well as on my HPO sponsors website, which is zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, welcome back for another episode of the HPO podcast. Uh, I'm stoked for this one. So uh, today I have uh, Jason Caldwell on the show. Jason, uh, thank you for taking some time and hopping on HPO podcast with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've, uh, you know, I recorded uh, getting close to 300 episodes now. So, you know, the, the podcast has been out there long enough, I think, like, I'll get people reaching out with guest suggestions and things like that. And it's always interesting to see which ones come across. And uh, I actually remembered uh, kind of reading some stuff on your story a while back and thinking, yeah, man, I got to make an effort to get, to get Jason on the show and you know, how life happens and you end up putting things on the back burner. I never actually ended up trying to connect with you, but then 
uh, your team got a hold of me not too long ago. And I was like, oh, sweet. That's right. <laughs> Let's make this one happen. Serendipitous. <laughs> there we go. Meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, uh, I mean, for folks who aren't familiar with you, uh, I mean, we can probably start with you just giving a little bit of a background, but uh, uh, like our, you know, our activities of choice, I guess, have enough parallels where it makes a lot of sense that I think that I'd be interested in what you're up to. But if you want to just kind of share with our listeners, like a little bit about you, what you're kind of known for, and then we can kind of hop into some details. Yeah, sounds good. So, um, you know, most people know me as a rower. I rode in college. I rode for an elite training team afterwards, Vesper Boat Club in Philadelphia, um, where I rode there for a few few years, won a couple gold medals in nationals, a silver and a bronze. And then I got into more of the adventure side of rowing, big water rowing, um, rowing oceans. So I've rowed across the Atlantic Ocean twice, once in 2015 and 16, and then again in 16 and 17, where during that year, we not only won the race, but broke the world record as the fastest team to ever row across the Atlantic Ocean. And then most recently, actually just about two months ago, uh, we completed rowing the Pacific Ocean from San Francisco to Hawaii, where we broke that world record by nine days. We did that one in 30 days. Um, looking forward to talking more about that. But the other side uh, of my life is I own a leadership development company. So we do leadership training programs uh, for large organizations. I teach at a number of business schools as well. And so what I really love is that uh, I get to kind of play in my favorite space, which is the intersection between um you know, how to teaching people how to build teams, maintain high performance. Um, but then I get to go out there and, and try to prove that what I'm talking about works. And so I get to try those things out by building my own teams for these big kind of audacious adventures and uh, making a lot of mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and then coming back to my clients and being able to share those experiences and uh, use those experiences to help teach and, and build, uh, you know, teams for the business world. So that's, that's me. And then also, um, when I'm not running around crossing oceans and, and working with clients, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father. And um, I've got a, a, a boy, Tristan, who just turned two yesterday. So I'm, I'm officially into what people call the terrible twos. <laughs> haven't seen it yet. I'll talk. I think it's the clumsy twos because I think in the 24 hours he's been uh, two years old. He's tripped and, and fallen, busted his eye, his eye and now his lip. So um, we, <laughs> it doesn't look good for us as parents. But anyway, uh, just enjoying that journey as well. So. No doubt. That's very cool. I think it's interesting the parallels you can draw from the things that like you're doing into other areas of life. I get, I seem to get a lot of those questions myself more recently where people are interested like about like what the process and the mental approach is because they can see like if I'm going to try to build a team for business or if I'm going to build, you know, anything really like there's got to be a like an order of operation, so to speak. And there's got to be a kind of go-to way to respond to mistakes, adversities, like all these things that are, it's like what I like to say about like running a hundred miles is it's not a question if something's going to happen. You didn't expect the question is when is it going to happen? How are you going to respond to it? And like, when I think about what you're doing, especially your most recent one, where you're, you're on a, you're on a, a boat essentially with three other, three other, three other people for 30 plus days in an environment that's quite unforgiving, it's like, I mean, you're, you're not just like, oh yeah, I'm going to call an Uber and go back home if things go wrong. <laughs> so like, I would imagine given 30 days and other people's and like, you know, their interactions with you and the environment, everything like that, there's going to be mistakes made that you guys have to kind of respond to and adjust to that are going to take some kind of high level problem solving and some of it you can probably plan for where you know, like, okay, I'm going to, if this happens, we do this. If that happens, we do this. But then there's going to be things like, 
that you really just can't plan for and you have to figure it out on the fly. So what, what is it, what is it like, what is that like, I guess, kind of the preparation for a project like that? Yeah, I mean, it's so complex, you know, we, we, we talk about these big adventures as campaigns, and that's really what they are. I mean, they're, they're not just the row itself, um, but it's everything leading up to that row. It's, it's building the team, training the team in the right way, getting that funding that's going to, you know, required for having the boat and all the equipment mounted and un unmounted equipment. And then, of course, getting everyone to the start line, it, it, it's a tough, tough thing just to get to the start line. I, I said on this one, I, I said there was a sense of relief as we pushed off through the Golden Gate on uh, May 31st. And I just felt like all and you, you can identify with this. All that was left to do was to suffer. I almost felt like because we had done what we needed to do. We were the team that we were. In fact, I had a, a coach on, on my elite team that said that, you know, medals are earned in the offseason. You just simply row the race to go pick them up. Um, he made it that casual. He's like, just go row the 2000 meters down the race course because the finish line is where the medals are, but like the, the color of your medals already been determined. And I think that that speaks a lot to the process. That's what he was. He was a guy who had a process, um, you know, not the process. I think there's a lot of different ways that you get ready for really difficult challenges. Um, and so, but that he was so locked into what he believed was how he built um, his athletes up and, and to win races that he was that he was that confident and and that and so I think that's something I took from me from him is that uh, you know we are constantly trying to build this team up so that when we push off that start line it's done you know all we have to do is row it now and you know just to speak on on the on this row the Pacific was it wasn't easy it was a lot of um, problems right up to the day before the race. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about three days before the race, I don't think we're going to be able to push off when the race starts. We're going to have to go independent because the boat wasn't ready. Um, we were having problems with, uh, with um, all the electronics on the boat. We were having problems with our GPS and you just can't push off on something, uh, you know, a 2,400 mile rowing race across the ocean. If you don't feel 100% confident, your teammates don't feel 100% confident that yeah. you've got everything on that boat. It's not just going to get you across, but it's going to actually get you across safely. And so, uh, you know, up to a few days before we were talking about those things and, and it was a mad dash. COVID obviously, um, you know, played its, its role in there. We were supposed to row this race last year, but COVID precluded us from that. So we had a teammate that had to drop out because um, he couldn't commit to this year. You know, he was starting a family with his wife. So um, they, were, they were pregnant. So, um, you know, then all of a sudden scrambling to get another teammate, um, you know, and then so all these things happen. You know, I got my teammates that are in the UK and I'm here in the, in the US. So we're not able to get together and train as much. All that stuff just were, were just, you know, monkey wrenches thrown into um, just the planning of this thing before we even pushed off before, as you talk about these, these problems that you can't, you know, you, that you don't know that when they're going to happen, just know that they will. So all these things that we could plan for, you know, the time that we had, um, we could get our hands around it. We were are still being thrown, thrown, uh, you know, kind of curveballs here left and right. So it was, I would say a success just to push off. And um, I think it was this big resiliency piece. There was, there could be between the four of us, we're in San Francisco, we're spending two weeks. We thought it was going to be a casual two weeks. I'm from this area. So I was talking about taking the Giants game one day, and then we'll go and ride a cable car. We do all these touristy things, just really relax. Well, then none of that happened. We didn't do any of that stuff. Um, we spent every single day on the boat, getting it ready, solving problems until the day that we pushed off and 
there could have been a lot of finger pointing, um, but there wasn't, you know, it was here, here's the situation we're in. It doesn't really matter how we got here. It's, you know, you can blame COVID, you can blame teammates, you can blame, blame fundraising, whatever it is, but here we are. And everyone's head was just locked in and, and it took us till literally the day before, but you know what, we broke the world record by nine days. And well, I'm looking forward to talking more about that, but you know, a lot of that world record um, was, you know, was, that took place in those weeks leading up to it. So, yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm sure there's, there's a mountain of things that are done behind the scenes before you even start with that. People don't really recognize, even if they're following the, the actual event itself or project itself uh, that kind of puts everything in place to be able to even be in a position to chase a world record. And, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to interview quite a few people now who have done uh, what they call a transcontinental run from San Francisco to New York and talking to them and their crew is really interesting because there's always these weird things you wouldn't have ever thought of, but then you're like, oh, now that I think about it, it makes total sense. And one that I think kind of stuck out to me is just like timelines where like for, for that particular project, like it seemed like kind of an early to mid September start was like ideal from a weather standpoint. Is there something similar with that for uh, I'm guessing from San Francisco to Hawaii, where there's a, like a really kind of strict time frame during the year where this is how we're going to have the best luck potentially with weather related type issues. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially in between hurricane seasons, I mean, you've got a window and um, you know, you can't go much earlier than, than sometime in May um, because you're just not going to have, you're not going to have the wind and the currents that you want. But if you go much later into the summer, then you're dealing with hurricane season. Um, that can be very, very dangerous. And then you take into that consideration, then you're thinking about, um, you're talking about like lunar timetables, things that people don't usually think about, but, uh, you want to try to go when you've got, some, you can take advantage of not only a full moon, but a full moon that is, is rising. And that is in the, in the night sky, most of the night, because the difference between having a beautiful full moon, it's essentially lighting up your entire, your entire night shifts, as opposed to no moon where you're you're shrouded in utter darkness is a game changer if you're going to make this thing happen so you're talking about the ultimate weather uh, of you know the seasonal weather then you're talking about lunar schedules then you're going even further down and you're talking about tide schedules you know when are you going to push off through san francisco for those of you that don't know uh the bay area very well you're talking about um a huge bay with water rushing into essentially about a mile and a half of opening so it is going through the golden gate which is the only opening into the bay um is wild when the tide is going in or out so you certainly aren't going to want to fight going in you know against that tide you're going to want to let the tide shoot you out so you know you've got all these different things that uh, mother nature is requiring of you and then you've got to be ready to go when she says all right here's your window so it's crazy yeah, it's interesting. And I think like the the question I'm sure anyone that listens to this is going to be wondering is about like wave patterns and things like that. It's uh, like, I mean, we just had the Olympics occur recently. So like people probably at least paid a little bit of attention to the canoeing and the, and the two man, uh, two woman, uh, like rowing competitions where they have essentially, it looks like almost ice. They're just gliding over. Yeah. Whereas you're, you're probably not seeing that le level of pristine water. <laughs> I would no. imagine. Yeah. Well, so take, take everything that you saw in rowing in the Olympics and then throw it out the window. Because, <laughs> uh, that's what ocean rowing is. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll break it down a little bit for you because I come from a world of that flat water rowing, that Olympic style, 2000 meter course rowing. Um, that's what I did in college. And I did on the elite team at Vesper as well. 
Um, you know, and I wrote it everything from in the single, uh, just just by myself, all the way to eight eight man boats. Um, and so, um, where you got one oar, uh, you know, or you've got two oars sweeping or sculling. So uh, that is what I grew up doing. Um, but ocean rowing is a different beast. Yes, it is that type of rowing. You're still using those same types of oars, but the conditions that you're in, as you can imagine, are are brutal. And I'd say. You know these these trans ocean rowing races. You know could you you know you could make a make an argument for being one of the toughest rate you know races in the world. And I always kind of think of it as being tough for two very very different reasons. Um, the first one is the more obvious reason, which is the physicality. So um, this is a four person race, and you are in a thirty foot boat. Um, and so you are, um, if you want to keep, you know, want to win this race or, you know, even potentially break a world record as our teams are always trying to do, you've got to keep this boat moving the entire time. So you've got two people rowing and then you've got two people resting and you're rotating two hours on two hours off 24 hours a day throughout the entire crossing. So just to put that in perspective, what I just got back from eight weeks ago was 30 days of that two hours on, two hours off. So you don't stop at night and just sleep for eight hours. There's no boat that's following you that you get off and sleep on. Like this 30 foot boat is your home and you are responsible as an individual for 12 hours of rowing each day. However, sometimes weather precludes you from uh, having to, you know, just row with two. So you got to row with three um, just to push through weather, in which case, instead of two hours on, two hours off, you're doing two hours on, 40 minutes of rest, which means a 12 hour day becomes an 18 hour rowing day for you. So that physicality alone, um, you know, I, I came into this, this race at 6'4", 220 and uh, came out of it uh, still 6'4", but uh, about, <laughs> about 190. Um, I lost about 30 pounds on this one and I've lost 40 pounds on, on one of my other rows. So just the physical toll, plus the sleep deprivation, the malnourishment, the dehydration, it's just physically, it just beats you up. And the second part that people don't think about it as much, because why would you if you're not following these races, is the logistics. So this is an unassisted rowing race. As I mentioned before, you don't have anybody following. There's no boat following us or anything like that. We are out there on our own and everything that we need to make this crossing is in this boat. So we've got a water desalinator that literally sucks up salt water and sends it through a high pressured carbon fiber chamber and that's our water for desalinating you've got freeze-dried meals that are kind of 75 percent i'd say of your of your rations and then you've got things like nuts and dried fruit and protein bars that make up kind of the other 25 percent and um so that's what you're eating and what you're drinking and um you know you're being exposed to that, that sun during the day and you've got these two small cabins uh that you can crawl into literally like kind of coffin like cabins you close the door and and that window's right on you and and inside there that's your that's where you're sleeping and that's where you're kind of recovering for those two hours off and everything in your boat's being powered by these two small solar panels and uh, you know that's powering your your sat phones and your radios and your gps for navigation your auto tiller um and you know that's everything is right there so if something breaks you've got to you know you got to learn to fix it if it can't be fixed you're gonna have to learn to live without it. So it's constant, uh, you know, you're rowing, which is hard, but it's those non-rowing uh, hours that I always say are the harder hours because that's trying to prioritize, you know, what you're going to do in these two hours, knowing that you have to eat, drink, sleep, take care of your injuries. Those are, those are inevitable. And you know that, as you, you know, as an endurance runner yourself, that like you're just deteriorating as you get further along. And, um, but then there's also things, things are breaking on the boat. You've got to take care of that boat needs to be cleaned. 
um, you know, teammates need to be cooked for and that those kinds of things. And you've got a sick teammate or an injured teammate that he needs to be taken care of and looked after. So there's always extra things to be doing. You're constantly trying to figure out when am I going to get all these things that I have to do for myself and to take care of my body, but also that I'm responsible for as a teammate on this boat. And so, yeah, it's the physicality, but it's those logistics that I say, this is, this makes it very difficult. So I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop there because I could go on for hours, but. No, that's awesome. I think you're touching on a lot of points I'm interested in with this. And I think like the big one that I, I always try to wrap my head around with these type of projects is just like the sleep side of things where, uh, I mean, just you describing that it's like, well, you know, best case scenario, you get maybe like 90 minutes every once in a while. And then that doesn't figure in like what you said, like the cooking, the cleaning, the maintenance, the fixing and all that stuff, which I'm guessing the off rowers are taking care of for the most part. Yep. Uh, so what, what kind of sleep, like, do you guys track any of that stuff? Do you know, like, oh, over the 30 days I slept X number of hours or it was broken up in X amount of ways? Yeah, roughly. But you nailed it, by the way, just saying that it's 90 hours because everyone thinks, oh, you only get two hours of sleep. It's not, it's less than that, because like you said, you, you nailed it. You're, 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 you're not just getting off the oars and falling right to sleep. You got to eat, you got to drink, you got to take care of your body. There might be some things that you have to do before you go to bed. Um, but yeah, so you're, you're talking about 90 minutes and you're not really sleeping during the day. It's too hot in the cabins. And that's during the day is when you can get a lot more things done. Whereas in the, in the middle of the night, you, you just really prioritize sleeping. So, you know, we've tried to do, we've tried to, um, we've worked with some companies that we've tried to track that stuff. It's been really interesting to, uh, nutrition companies and and different kind of wearables that want to track that, but it's just really difficult um, in in general just to track all that stuff. And you don't have a place where you can, uh, you know, charge a lot of things. And we were trying to we were working with a company that wanted to see how our blood composition was changing over this the course of the thirty days that we were out there, and we literally could not get any blood out of our fingers after about a few days. And I'm not sure if that was a result of like the constant pulling from the oars that was causing uh, lack of blood flow or that we were just massively dehydrated, but we couldn't literally even take blood samples. So, um, you know, so we don't have great data on that. I think as I continue on these big epic endurance rows, as the years go on, I'm, I'm looking forward to collecting more of that data as technology makes it easier for us to do that. But I would say that if you're getting, you know, I think if you're getting four to five hours of sleep a day, that's good. I would say like you would love to get five to six, um, you know, but you're certainly not getting more than that. Um, and, and that sleep is, as you can imagine, is not like deep sleep or even, you know, at times REM, but it's, it's a lighter sleep because you're, you're constantly waking up when you hear things and the boats kind of throwing you around. But I will say that we train a lot of that and you, you kind of, kind of trait, you know, crate train yourself. I mean, you get into these small cabins and at first it feels claustrophobic. I mean, we're talking about a cabin that would just kind of almost like frames how you see me right now in this camera um you know and you can't you know you can barely spread spread out when you're lying down feels claustrophobic by by middle of the week or middle of the race you're really feeling like it's like your place of safety you go there you clap you know you you clamp it down it's watertight and like you feel for those two hours like you are safe and there's um there's a there's a that that will help you with your sleep and and all that kind of stuff but we you know it's why experience is king on these types of things is knowing how you react to those types of conditions. So, yeah. Hey folks, just a quick reminder. This episode sponsors include inside trackers, top notch blood panel offerings for 25% off and by optimizers breakthrough magnesium for 10% off and a 365 day money back guarantee for all HBO listeners. 
If either of these products interest you or any HBO sponsors, links and details are in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about because like obviously everyone assumes you need some sleep, but then it's like how much of it do you try to like learn, which like with your scenario is uh, just really unique where like my contacts from people I've talked to have been like sleeping in an RV. Well, I mean, I could rent an RV and practice that or like, you know, sleep in a, like a bivy or something like that, which would be maybe similar to that. But for you, it's like, you have to probably get used to falling asleep with the patterns of the, the, the boat and that you, like you said, that claustrophobic nature of being in that little cabin and then whatever varying temperature and noises are different uh, yeah. are all things you probably have to learn before. So you have a, an order or a, a process in place when, when you're out there, and when it really counts. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough to replicate these, these types of crossings. And I mean, you know, you've done hundred mile runs. You're talking about, you can't just, you don't just go out and run that hundred miles. And I can't speak for how you train for that. Um, but you know, you're, you're building to that, but you may never do a hundred mile run before your first hundred mile run. I'm assuming you don't. Um, it's the same with an ocean crossing. You're never going to cross an ocean before you cross an ocean. Now, if you add up all the meters that I row, in preparation for it on my on my on my rowing machine in my house and you know when i'm going out on the water it equals a crossing but nothing you know can replicate the feeling of getting in a boat during a storm having to kind of manage being in this cabin as you're being thrown back and forth the salt that's all over you that that is introduced to your body and that you just never basically leaves which creates salt sores ever i mean that, that stuff you cannot replicate and so, you know, when I'm building these teams, I'm looking for people that have have road oceans, have done this type of stuff. And as you can imagine, that that pool is pretty shallow. But when I when I don't get an ocean rower, I'm looking for people that have gone through that mentality. Yes, endurance athletes, big time. Um, I've had a lot of success with military personnel, um, and you know, just just people that have that have chosen to participate in life, as I like to say, um, and, and have put themselves in some pretty pretty tough conditions and understand who they are when they're in those conditions, because um, you won't know how you respond to it until you're actually out there. And, you know, and I've, and believe me, I've had, I've had been on the, on the losing end of that one where I thought I had a great team and, um, and then we get out there and, and it doesn't start, you know, it doesn't go well. And, and then you're starting to see some true colors come out there. And so uh, you learn a lot about yourself Um you know, that sounds like a cliche, but I think, well, a lot of people just, as if you, you gotta be honest with who you are even beforehand. And we all like to think that we're, you know, the superheroes of our, of our, of our little story here. And, you know, we can go through anything. And the reality is that we just can't, um, you will be the weakest guy on that team at some point. And, um, will you be, um, will you be, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for kind of, you know, vulnerable enough to ask for help during that time. And you will be the strongest point person on that team at some point. And will you be selfless enough to give more of yourself when you're the stronger person? I'm constantly trying to figure out how I can identify those types of great character traits as I'm building the team out, knowing that I may not see the real person until we're already out there. So, um, you know, we're talking about, I'm kind of getting off on a on more, more on the character of a, of a teammate, but I think that that all just kind of speaks to what we're talking about, which is that you're, you're in these, these really tough situations and you're learning a lot about yourself too. You know, it's not just about, uh, I'm constantly, even in this last row, I'm seeing things that, you know, this is my first row being a father, you know, that's my first big adventure as, as a dad and there's more stakes. I've got, a, I got a son at home now. So 
how am I, how is that, how am I responding to challenges differently now that I know that I'm a dad out there? So, you know, those are all, those all play a factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because when I'm just like kind of piecing this together in my head, it's like you have this team of four, four people, and I'm sure you all have training programs that both have similarities and individual variances. And then the big one I think is that's interesting is a lot of the training I'm sure you're doing on your own, but ultimately you probably have to be working as a team in training aspects as well to get used to what you're going to be going through during the project itself. Like how much of this stuff is like, okay, here's just what I need to do to get myself ready. I know these other three guys are going to be doing the same thing versus, okay, we're all together now. Let's work on some things that we're going to need to be on the same page about when we're out there on the ocean. Yeah. I mean, ideally you'd love to be doing all this stuff as a team. I mean, if I, if I could find a way to uh, have, you know, ocean rowing, uh, pay for the for the lifestyle that my family and I are <laughs> uh, are comfortable with, and I would love to just spend every single day with my team and training every day in the weights every day, rowing on the rowing machine every day. Then we go out on the water every day. That's just not the reality of of these types of of efforts, um, and it's made more complicated by the fact that, as I mentioned, you know, ocean rowers are few and far between, and, and American ocean rowers are even less. I mean, most people that have rowed oceans are, are in the UK or in Europe. Um, there's only, there are only a small handful of guys that are, you know, men and women that are in the U S that have done it. So I find myself to be constantly, you know, doing, doing a lot of my training on my own, but then, you know, usually what we do is we build in large blocks of time where I'll either fly out to the, to Europe and with the team and we'll row out there for, for a while at, they'll come out and most times it's both, you know, they'll come out a couple of times. I'll go out there a couple of times over the course of the two year campaign and uh, we'll know each other. Well, we'll have gotten into, you know, into some hairy conditions um, as well on those trainings. And then all of a sudden we feel pretty good. That wasn't the case on this last row. And I'll use, I'll use this last row as, as an example. Um, you know, I've got three teammates. So uh, between the four of us, we had seven, ocean rows between the four of us, which is unheard of in terms of experience. I mean, that is far and away the most. However, it was actually only three of us that had the ocean row. So we had one guy that had rowed, rowed uh, three oceans and then and two of us that had rowed two. And then we had one guy who was taking the place, as I mentioned before, of a teammate that was supposed to row with, with us last year, but couldn't commit to this year. Um, he's a formal Royal Marine, was London's fittest man in 2018. I mean, everything on paper says this guy absolutely will, will, will crush this and everything that they, but I never got to meet him until he came here. I mean, he was only on the team for four months or something like that. And so uh, the, the rest of the guys went out with him. He did great. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of training hard. His work ethic is fantastic. His, his, you know, his mental fortitude and kind of where his place was on the team. He's really, you know, he was, he was great. Um, and then we got out there and he took it on the chin with seasickness and that's not his fault. Um, but it just hit him hard by the time within the first couple of days, once we kind of got out past the continental shelf there of California and it just gets hairy and it's cold and you're getting hit with waves. And at night it's, it's disorienting. And he, uh, he really, he, he just, he got, he took it on the chin big time and he was for the first week, very, very seasick. And, you know, to his credit, he, he muscled through it, but we had to take shifts from him um, just to give him some more time to rest. And then that second week, he started to slowly clear it, but he was, you know, he was weak because he hadn't been able to eat much in that time. And, you know, um, 
I don't know how would we have identified that he would have gotten that sick. Um, you know, it's not his fault. It's not our fault. Um, you know, and even if we did know that he had a propensity to get sick like that, would we have, would we have said he's off the team? I mean, what would we have done? There's nobody else. There's nobody just on the wing there waiting to take 30 days out of their lives to just go across an ocean. So, um, you know, we did our best and on, on paper, you know, we broke the world record by nine days and that's great, but it wasn't without its drama. And, and so, um, you know, having to identify these, these things still, I don't know, you know, I'll, I'll do something next year. And I, I don't know how building the team, how I'll, I'll identify these things. So. It's really interesting. I've got kind of one more, I guess, equipment, maybe related logistical yeah. question before I want to move on to kind of like some of your training protocol and nutrition protocol stuff. And one is just, uh, you know, like we've been kind of alluding to here is like, you know, the ocean is a different environment than what most people are thinking of when they're thinking of water and boating and all that stuff. And like, what type of like size waves are you planning for? Is the boat like some, like, obviously the boat is built in a way that's going to be able to tolerate what you would assume is going to be the worst case scenario. And what is it kind of like trying to maneuver through some of that real rough, rough, uh, kind of environment versus like a little bit more of a smoother ride? Yeah. I mean, you got, you've got a boat here that's made for ocean wrong. I mean, it's a carbon fiber composite boat. Um, you know, this thing is self-riding, self-bailing as and as long as you keep the two cabin doors closed like it will it's it's almost indestructible um that being said uh you know you still got to row it and it certainly doesn't row itself so you know you've got and you're dealing with this so you know uh, you like you like having waves especially the ones that are pushing in the right direction with you know little pushers that are kind of like just slamming into the stern of the boat and knocking the boat forward helps you those are great days you can add a lot of speed but it can go from that kind of nice, nice weather to real bad weather, even if it's still in the right direction real quick. And my, my first row, I rode the Atlantic ocean for the 2015, 16, uh, I had two guys, two teammates of my, of my three teammates be evacuated to illness and injury. So 600 miles into this race, we had a sailboat come and evacuate two of the guys. And it was just me and, and my remaining teammate, Tom, and uh, so we're in a boat that's made for four or five people with just the two of us. And we uh, we hit some gnarly, gnarly weather um, where we started seeing 20, 30 and at times 40 foot waves, these walls of water. And, I, you know, you say, how do you know? How do you measure them out there? Well, like you can't. But all, what I can tell you is that our boat, which is 32 feet long, was up it and literally surfing down it at times. And so you're just you're at that and that not rowing position. And, you know, you're, you're just basically, you're becoming, uh, you know, you're just trying to keep the boat from rolling or pitch pulling. And so these efforts are scary and not scary enough during the day as you're kind of going up this, like this wave and you're kind of like a surfer trying to kind of come down at a 45, but then, you know, then it had, then night falls and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're in this pitch blackness instead of like seeing this, this kind of set of waves coming in, you're just kind of reacting as it pitches one you one way or the other and you're just kind of desperately trying to row with one arm to try to keep the boat and um tell you what i mean you know i'm not trying to sound too, too dramatic but those are some of the scariest times was with just tom and myself in that first row rowing a boat that was just way too big for us and you're on this deck by yourself because the other guy's resting in the cabin and so you're just trying to keep this thing from from rolling and just you know spending those two hours just, you know, forget trying to stay dry, forget, you know, worrying about injury. Like you're just trying to keep this thing. You're just trying to keep from capsizing. So, mm -hmm. you know, there was, there's, there's, you know, a lot of drama out there and, you know, the, the 
ocean doesn't take it easy on you when when the, when it's been hitting you for a couple of days it is what it is and you know it doesn't take it easy on you when the sun goes down it doesn't say like all right truce until the sun goes back up it's just it is it is you're in the storm that you're in and um you know you're also a rowboat so you can't see these storms and try to go around it or anything like that i mean if it's coming at you it's coming at you so yeah there's like a level of unpredictable uh or maybe not unpredictable but just you don't know when where i think of like what i'm doing is even if it's a really harsh terrain uh, like I can look at the course map and know like, oh yeah, at mile 32, I'm going to have to go up this steep technical climb and that's going to suck, but I know where it is and I know about when it's going to happen. Whereas you kind of have to just be ready for that to happen when it does and then respond to it, which I find really interesting because when I think of racing long stuff, it's obviously you have to manage your energies appropriately so that you don't like, you know, go so hard the first day where you have nothing left to give the rest of the time. But there's also like, you know, aside from the physical energy side, I think it's the mental energy part where you can kind of drain how much you're able to really stay focused, how easily you become distracted or how negative sometimes you end up getting because you've been just getting beaten down mentally over and over again. What's it like kind of managing that? Like, do you have a, do you look at it like that where you have kind of like a mental currency or is it so reactive that you don't even have a chance to really give it much thought? You're just constantly reacting to what's coming next. No, I mean, you nailed it. I could speak for so long on this. I mean, it's so mental and it's so emotional. And I think, you know, I obviously I coach and consult with teams that are looking to do this for the first time. And, I, you know, they're so, you know, athletes, when, when they need to feel like they need to prepare, they go and get stronger and they get faster. You know, it's easy to, to get on a rowing machine and say, I'm just going to keep preparing by rowing more or lifting more and get, but you need to spend more time um, kind of understanding that it's going to be a mental and emotional battle, um, every bit, if not more than, than the physical side. I mean, the physical will go fast, you know, then it's, you're left with, with your, the, like you said, the mental and emotional currency. And, and yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking of that way. I mean, as, as a really rough over, you know, just, this was a four week row the, my world record in the Atlantic was 35 days. And then the Atlantic where it was just two of us was 51 days, but like in this 30 days, it was four weeks. I mean, I, I knew that it was going to be anywhere between, you know, 30 and 40 days. You know, I, I knew that we'd probably be able to do it in there. Um, but I, that, that first week is really like you're just trying to get comfortable, you know, just try to find that rhythm out there. There is a moment when the seasickness passes through you. It could be day three, day five, whatever it is. And all of a sudden you feel better. Um, and then all of a sudden you can just you just you seem to be able to like balance yourself on the boat a little bit more. You're falling asleep a lot quicker. All of a sudden, you're just trying to, you get into this rhythm where I almost say like the ocean kind of accepts you and you kind of become almost like a primitive version of yourself. And I'm sure you've felt that before. And I, you kind of lock in with the elements and where you are. And that's kind of what the first week for me is all about. It, it's locking in with the elements. I, I no longer live on land. I, 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 all that is over. I am an ocean rower. And then the next two weeks, that, those, that, that middle two weeks, I, I always say like to my teammates, forget everything about your life. Like you, you're, you're not a father and you're not a husband and you're, you know, you, whatever your career is, it's not there. It does not exist right now because not because you should be taking risks that you otherwise shouldn't be, but to start thinking about home is way too early. You know, this is not something where you get to see them after each stage or, you know, you know, we, we get to call them on the sat phones every few days for these you know, you know, barely audible conversations. You've got to, 
you know, Garmin inReach, you can text them or something like that. Short little text. That's it though. So those middle two weeks, it's about, it's about the team and the, and the men that we're with. And, and I, I try to really just block out everything else. And, and then it's not until the final week that you can maybe let yourself start to thinking about life back on land as a motivator to get you through the rest. Um, so that's kind of how I, I break it up as a, as a real, like on a 30, you know, 30,000 foot kind of view of that stuff. But then you're going through all these like micro and mental, mental and emotional traumas, you know, um, you know, just parts where you're just, you don't feel like you can finish the next two hours of your shift, let alone the next 20 days. Um, and I find that when I'm most positive and I'm strongest, I can see far out. You know, I can say, I, I see what the next week looks like. This is the mileage we need to get every day. Here's how we're going to make up for it. Should we hit adverse weather? And I can start being a planner. And then you go inevitably through the, the weaker moments emotionally and you start to, you can't see that far. It's like this fog kind of rolls in and you literally sometimes can't see past the next day. I'm just trying to get until the sun comes up. That's all I'm thinking about right now. How am I going to get from where I am now to when that sun comes up at, you know, whatever it is, 8.20 in the morning on my shift. And, um, and then other times it's literally like, I'm trying to get through the next 45 minutes until I can get into that cabin and, um, you know, maybe go feel sorry for myself a little bit and get some rest. So it really, and, you know, once you're in that boat and you've, you're kind of working on those, those emotional, and you have emotional triggers, you know, and you say you're not thinking about your family, but of course you are thinking about your family. You know, I try to keep it business right there, but, you know, I'm going to think about my son and wonder why he probably doesn't understand, you know, why I'm gone. He just one day woke up and I wasn't there. He's old enough to know I'm not there, but not old enough to realize why. And so those types of things hit anyway. So you've got all this and you've got to manage this. And the best way to manage it is to be honest with yourself. And I'll, and I'll say this last thing and, and I'll, we can move on, but you know, one of my teammates on this last row um, mentioned that he was worried about me um, because he thought I was spending too much time, you know, at, at, at home and with my family because this left from my area. So I was able to go home every night. I was, well, my teammates had to quarantine for two weeks in the Caribbean. Then they came out of here. It was, it was a month of being away from their families before we even started this thing where I, I got to see my family until last day. And, you know, it was easy to react to and say, you know, like, don't worry about me. You know, I'll be fine. You know, worry about yourself kind of thing. But it was it was a fair assessment for this teammate to be suggesting, saying, like, how are you going to be leaving your family? And then, you know, we've already had a chance to kind of like miss them, but I'll also be away. But the reality was I had been thinking about leaving my son since he was born. You know, I knew that the my next adventure would come and I would eventually have to push off and be okay with being away from him for a long time. And so it was, it was the same thing as training my body, the same thing as rowing and lifting and, you know, doing all my cross training, like trail running and swimming to build up those muscles. I was building up. I, I love the, the emotional currency that, that you use. Like that is what it was building up that emotional currency in the bank so that I had it when I left and it worked. Um, you know, it, it really did. Of course, did I miss my family like crazy? Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I was able to be able to kind of separate that when I needed to be there for my team. So, yeah, I mean, one of the more interesting things that I thought of while you were describing that is just this kind of, I guess, mindset that we're in nowadays where there's just such a high level of comfort and kind of reliability that we've essentially built into our lives, uh, at least in, in like first world countries, that is a very, very small percentage of actual human existence where, 
you know, like what you're doing out there in the ocean is actually probably much more closely related to actually living in an environment where it's super unpredictable. There's very little security. There's, you know, a lot of dangers and things like that. And there seems to be like this situation with, you know, projects like what you've done and some of the other folks that I've talked to that do these multi-day things where you're reliant upon, you know, things happening that you don't expect where you almost have to have a switch go off after a while where now you're in that environment and your, your mind and body kind of go back to like, I guess what, as humans, we probably knew as just our reality for the majority of our existence, um, which is, I think it's, it's, it's just interesting because since like, you know, folks my age and you know most basically almost anyone alive at this point living in, in the United States is, is gonna like, look at that and be like, well, here's a window into like our prior existence through, you know, folks like yourself. And uh, you know, you, you hear all their story, you know, you have these, like, I don't know how much TV you watch, but you have like these TV shows where like, well, this person's going to go live out in Alaska for, you know, however long and just live off the land. And it's just like this fascinating glimpse into like, perhaps what the realities would have been like if we remove all the securities and predictability that we've kind of built into our day-to-day life. Yeah. I mean, I, I am 100% in that camp. I, you know, I live a, a, you know, a great comfortable life where a fridge is always full and there's always a roof over our heads. And if it's a little, it's a little toasty in our house, we can just go ahead and hit the down arrow button. And then all of a sudden I'm comfortable again. And believe me, I think about this when I'm training because then I'm going to be thrown into the deep end of discomfort. And you're right. We have, we have literally conditioned ourselves to always search for the greatest means of comfort. And that's okay, by the way, we, we deserve that. Like this is, this is, you deserve, people deserve to have that. I wish everybody in this world have it. But if you then choose to go ahead and participate in these incredibly diff- difficult multi-day adventures where you're, you're being exposed to the elements, it is, you know, the juxtaposition between those two lives is, is, is huge. And so I think one of the things that I, I have prided myself in being is someone who can play in both those spaces quite well. And, um, my, my training is about finding ways to create discomfort in my life um, to, to build up for that so that when I'm out there, I'm not shocked by it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's other people, and I've got a, a great example of a teammate um, who's done two of my rows with me, and we, we trek Namibia together, Angus Collins, a, a great adventurer and a great friend, and he um, he's almost the opposite. He, uh, um, he has trouble re kind of inserting himself back into everyday life is that when he's out there, he's nails, you know, and he's, uh, he's, he, he can get into that, that flow into that, that kind of rhythm that I was talking about with nature really quickly. It's, but he has trouble getting back, you know, he has trouble coming back and re-engaging with, you know, society. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that there's a lot to be said for both those, whereas you're right. 2000 years ago, this was, we, we didn't call it adventures. We just called it life. I trekked across the Namib desert in 2018 in Southwest Africa. And uh, they made a big deal and said that, uh, you know, no one had done it in modern history. And the only reason anyone had done it period is because, well, 2000 years ago, which is where we left from, we saw these rock paintings uh, that were dated back to 2000 years ago of these hunters, you know, with, uh, you know, giraffe and elephants and uh, they were they were following the herds and they were they, they, they trekked it every year because they were just following the food source. And it, it almost makes you feel like we're celebrating something that people just did for life. And now I'm going to be celebrated for actually being able to complete it with 
by the way, a pump that's going to pump water out of the ground for me and capsules are going to clean anything out for it. And I've got, you know, the best shoes and all this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think about that all the time. Um, you know, you start to feel a little guilty that you have such a comfortable life. And then um, maybe, maybe some of my why is that I need to re-engage with like my more primitive self as a way to maybe connect with this world a little bit more. And I, you know, maybe that people think that's cheesy, but I think some of the reasons why I do this stuff is to prove to myself that like, I'm still capable of being this, this human that, you know, that, that I, I see myself as was an adventure and, and, and a tough person and a smart person. Um, so who knows, you know, I mean, I continue to do this stuff and learn a lot about myself from that. Yeah. You know, I think it's just a kind of a, a perfect situation, really, when you think about it, where like obviously the predictability and the securities that we've built into society are great for advancing society for pulling people out of poverty you know building you know essentially supercomputers that we can all stick into our pockets so that you know you can connect with people you would have never seen before been able to talk to before and uh you know try foods that you would have never been able to have because you would have had to hike a thousand miles to get to anything that would grow remotely similar to it and these sort of things but then you know, the removal of the hardships that would normally require that sort of, uh, you know, ease is also got some negative consequences to it, where it does make you kind of, it makes you softer, maybe like a little bit less uh, understanding. And, and that piece, if you can build it into that structure is kind of the perfect side of things, I think, because now we have all the benefits of the technology and things, but we also have the experience of what it's like to not have those. And it's just about like finding what way can you challenge yourself or interject a little bit of difficulty into your life so that you haven't lost touch with that side of humanity and you can appreciate it and then ultimately be probably a lot more grateful for that smartphone or, you know, that, that family vacation and all that stuff that we like to kind of uh, enjoy in the more comfortable sides of life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it just, you know, it creates compassion too. I think, yeah, you're right. We, we, we have these nice lives. Technology has given us, um, you know, we live longer. And when we, when we do live longer, we live more comfortably. We're able to do things. I mean, you know, but uh, without this connection to the, to, to the greater world, whether that be through adventures like I do or just simply traveling, I think we lose that compassionate component where we see things on the news and we, we automatically think that when someone's doing something that we wouldn't do, it, it has to be wrong or ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, you start to get out there and you realize that, that there's a, there's a piece called necessity um, that people have to build into their worlds. And that when we are um, able to do whatever we want, when we want, we have conditioned ourselves to living a certain way, but um, you know, you, you get out there and I'll give a, a, a great example. It's like, you know, this is of, of, of how far, away we are from people that are living in the same time as us is when I was in Namibia trekking. Um, I ended up having to trek most of it by myself because my two teammates had to call out because of heat exhaustion. And I'm on a, I'm on like day five or six or something like that. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm almost ready to be done. Um, I, my feet are killing me. Um, I'm just, I'm running out of water. I made it to a concession area. This was the entrance into a big big concession area um, they had a little village there and they had a well and they allowed me to take water from their well and um and there was a, a family that kind of managed this area and uh they allowed me to just camp outside of the village just outside and um there's a one particular boy 
you know, I put them at like 18 or something like that. That seemed really like interested in what I was doing. The rest of the, like the group didn't seem that interested in what I was doing, but he, he wanted to, to like, he wanted to know what I was doing. So I put my, I pitched my tent and I'm sun's going down. I'm just, I'm actually thinking about literally like maybe calling out the next day. I mean, I'm in, I'm in bad shit. And, um, and uh, he comes up and sits right next to me up by my tent. He just starts, he speaks like broken English. And then I'll never forget his name was Desmond. And, um, you know, we're, I'm talking and I give him some gum and, and uh, trying to encourage him. And just I, I, for, for no other reason, I've got nothing else to do. I'm just kind of asking him like, you know, what he's, uh, you know, what does he want to be when he grows up? And we're, we're, we're managing the conversation. And essentially in Namibia, in these, these, you know, these villages, out in the bush, um, the government usually comes to try to take the kids away and put them into schooling at a certain age. Well, these villages know that, that the government's going to come and, and take them away. And so their strong athletic children, they, they send out to pasture when the government's coming and hide them basically with the goats to like, so that they can't make a count. And the weaker kids, like a Desmond was stays in the village and he eventually got taken, not, not dramatically, forcefully taken, but they, they check him in and he goes to school. So as a result, he got a full education in Windhoek, the capital. I'm going somewhere with this. And um, he comes back and he's, he's, he's been educated and he comes back to help his family out in this village. And I said, what do you want to be? And he says, he wants to be, he wants to be a pilot. I was like, wow, that's, you know, that shocks me. And I said, you know, do you, have you ever been on a plane? He says, no. I said, have you ever like, even seen a plane and he just points the sky like basically just the ones that fly over every now and then and i and i get hit with this realization like desmond is never going to be a pilot like he just won't like he, he would have to go back to the capital and somehow get into school he has no money and then and these 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 customs like any money he does get he would bring back to his village like he won't have that opportunity to be a pilot like he just it's just not going to happen for him and here i am trying to just trek across what is essentially his backyard and people are going to applaud me for that. And I, I just remember like something switched in my head in that moment. I was like, just sitting next to this kid, you know, who's, you know, almost 20 years, my junior realizing that like, I'm, I'm out here because I'm just trying to pursue personal goals and ambitions of mine. Why well, he's going to literally be working in this village for the rest of his life from necessity. It was like, no, you're going to sleep as much as you can tonight. Then you're going to get your ass back up and you're going to finish this thing because Desmond's not going to be a pilot. And I, I, I use that guy as my motivator. That kid is my motivator throughout the entire crossing. Anyway, I thought it, it just seems relevant to what we were talking about. Just the juxtaposition of these two worlds that the Western world lives in and, 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 and the non-Western world lives in. It's just amazing. Yeah, no, your story is perfect. And it actually reminds me of my friend, Justin Wren, who's gone over to the Congo to help the Pygmy tribes in the past where it's, uh, it's just such a different mindset where like we can build in suffering, but ultimately we can always pull the plug. Exactly. Whereas, you know, like the Pygmy tribe, half their population is essentially gathering clean water all day. So it's like, you know, you get to hour eight of lugging water back to the you know to the tribe and it's like it's not a question of whether you're going to get it there or not it's like we have to get it there like yeah. there's really there's no other way like this is our reality this is and it's just like a weird i shouldn't say weird but just like a different mindset it's a paradigm shift almost and uh it's 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 interesting to hear guys like yourself talk about that as well as experience you've had in seeing that side where you know it's their reality versus their choice and and kind of where the differences are yeah yeah, it's uh, it's it, it constantly uh, baffles me. I think that that's that traveling piece is that um, that you can't get, you can't simulate 
here. You know, I can't simulate it in, you know, the suburbs of San Francisco. I'm just not going to be able to, I'm not, just not going to be able to gain that understanding. My brother just got back from spending a year in Jordan teaching youth wrestling there. He's a wrestler in college and he just got back last week and the story he's telling, I'm just so proud of him because he understands another another dimension of this world uh, through his experience with um, people that, um, that, you know, that, yeah, don't mispractice because they overslept or because they were partying the night before um, they mispractice because they got to go help their parents with something that's, you know, they're, they're, they're not looking for, you know, they're not just even paycheck to paycheck. The, the money that they make that day is going to the food that they will eat that night. And, you know, he, he got to experience that. I'm so proud of him for that. Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting perspective. Um, yeah, like so the 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 hardship side of things obviously needs to be injected before the start of a project like this to some degree in order to be physically and mentally ready for it. So I do find it interesting to kind of hear about just behind the scenes. What are you doing to prepare uh, when I run a hundred mile race, obviously that's the event itself is usually a little more publicized than the four months leading into it. Like, what was I doing in that? So could you just kind of walk us through like what maybe a typical training day would maybe look like, or if you, I'm assuming you maybe periodize your schedule, your training in some shape or form, or you're focusing on certain things during certain phases, and then you're transitioning towards other things. Uh, what is it like in terms of like a, a day in, in the life of a training protocol for, for you? Yeah, I would say, yeah, it is interesting. I appreciate you asking that question too, because you're right. Everyone wants to know how big the waves are, how to use the bathroom on the boat, but you know, like it's fun to talk about these things as well. Um, you know, like a campaign, I'd say for, uh, for a big ocean row, like, like the ones I do is usually two years. That's going to be what you need to get it ready. But I'd say for somebody who's already an elite athlete, like myself, you're, you're, you're talking about one year of hard training uh, to get yourself physically and kind of emotionally prepped for this thing. Um, and, you know, obviously where the training, where you are in your training will dictate how, like how, how hard it is, or, you know, how much time you're spending on it. But like a, a typical day of training for me, as we're kind of getting within the like last three months or so of my Pacific row. And I actually did like a day in the life. I did a, a like an Instagram post on that. And I found that a lot of my followers really appreciated that because they, they, they really hadn't seen it before, but um, you know, and this is, this is me because I I'm married with a kid. So it's like, I'm up at four 30 and I'm doing my first row on the rowing machine. And I'm going to spend two hours on that machine doing something, you know, whatever it's going to be that day, but I'm doing a two hour workout and that'll be down in my garage just to come upstairs, roll out, stretch out to be able to be there for my son and help make him breakfast when he, um, when he gets, uh, when he gets up at, uh, around seven o'clock and, um, you know, then I'm, I'm off, I'm off to work. I've got to work. I've got a day job, you know, I own my own business, but so I'm fortunate that I can make my own schedule, but you know, I've got to pay the bills. So I'm working all day. Then I'm doing an afternoon, uh, usually a lift. So I'm in the gym doing a lift in the afternoon. I've got to be home by five o'clock though, because my wife does tutoring for kids and she's usually tutoring in the evening. So I've got to be home by five to take care of Tristan. You know, we go for a walk, I make him dinner, we have bath time, then I put him down. By that time, my wife comes home and then I'm out the door for usually a third, uh, usually a, a run or, or a swim, uh, depending on, on what day it is and just something that, you know, is going to be uh, kind of a long distance, low intensity, and then trying to get in bed by 10 to do it all over again. So 
I usually try to do two to three different types of things during the day, surrounded by being a husband, being a father, running my own business. And that is very tiring. It was like in 2020, I trained the whole way up. We didn't pull the plug on the race uh, last year until like a few weeks before when we tried everything, but we just couldn't make it happen because I couldn't get my teammates from the UK. And all that, as you well know, it's wasted training. I mean, there is nothing. You can't put it in the bank and save it for later and say, okay, I'll just go ahead and insert that a year when I need all the training. Like, so a lot of my teammates, they went and did things anyway because they're like, what are we going to do? So two of my teammates rode around Great Britain, which was amazing. Um, but I was kind of stuck with not having much to do. And I just felt it. And I had to bring myself back down and then, you know, start it back up again. Because you can't maintain that level of intensity, as you well know, too. It's not sustainable. And what you're basically doing is, Rowing these oceans, you know, trekking deserts, running 100 mile runs. We we know we as athletes know that they're not healthy. <laughs> they, they, they break your body down. They, 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 you're slowly killing yourself. Is essentially what's happening. So what you're doing in preparation is to build your body and your mind up in a way that when you get to this extremely unhealthy thing that you're about to do, that you can kind of stave off the deterioration. And that's how I look at it. So. You know, 10 years ago, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was all about getting bigger, getting faster. And now, I mean, I spend so much more time rolling, stretching, you know, um, Pilates, yoga. We have a team doctor and nutritionist who's actually just next door, Dr. Lazarus. You know, I brought him in to try to give us a physical, mental and emotional edge um, at my second Atlantic row. It was game changing. We talk about as a team. Besides the things I just said, we're talking about things like working on breathing techniques, working on our circadian rhythms so that we can get more from the little amount of sleep that we're getting. Things like neuroplasticity. You get into a brain fog when you're out there because you, you're not thinking about much. You don't have the stimulation that you have on a day-to-day -day basis. So you literally have trouble just like thinking and just like thinking critically and making good decisions. So he works on us and, and ways and exercises we can do while we're out there so to keep us sharp, um, you know, and then just types of visualizations, all that stuff goes into the training so that when we get to these very, very difficult moments, you know, we aren't as shocked as we otherwise would be. So I don't know if I'm answering the question, but that's kind of some of the, some of the training that I do. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's uh, what you described was, uh, especially when you got to the mental side of it, it was something that I kind of learned a little bit on the fly with my own running career and with just like, you know, you do enough trial and error, you eventually find things that work better than others. But yeah. one of it was like, you know, finding ways to maximize any given effort so that it's not like, like when I got first got into like ultra marathons, it was all about physical adaptation. Like I got to stress my body this way to be ready for this. And if I do that, then my mind will be in the right place because I'll trust the training and then everything will take care of itself. And then I started kind of getting a little more efficient, I think, where it's like, instead of going out a 30 mile run and thinking about how this is going to prepare my body to eventually run hundred miles, it was, I have this opportunity to use this 30 mile run to prepare my body, but also prepare my mind for what I will be doing in that hundred mile race. So using visualization and things like that to try to like, actually pretend I'm out there doing like the last 30 miles of a hundred miler was something that made it so much easier when I would get to that point of the race itself. Cause I felt like I had some dress rehearsals built into training versus trying to draw from the last time I ran a hundred miles and think like, what was it? What did I do to get through this yeah. block last time? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's really way, I, love, I love how you rattle off 30 mile runs. Like, <laughs> like 
and it's nothing. Like I'm sitting here going like, <laughs> I've, I think the most I've ever done is 16. And I was like, so I, I just love that you rattle them off. That's great. <laughs> well, the, the nice thing about a 30 mile run is I can go to bed at night in a bed and get eight hours of sleep. Whereas when you're on a boat out in the ocean, those options are off the table. So uh, I, I, I love talking to guys like you for that very reason. There's enough, there's enough parallels, but there's also enough just completely different things that blow my mind, uh, about what you're able to do, uh, both in training and in, in event planning and, uh, execution too. And, uh, another thing I want to chat with you about too, is just kind of the nutrition side of things, because I think when you get into sport in general, you'll get, you get kind of go-to nutrition strategies or the essentially, you know, the more popular sport is the more science gets put pumped into it. The more, I guess, narrow you can maybe cut down as to like where, at least at a population level, the ideal nutrition strategy is going to be. Then you get to sports like what we're doing, where it's uh, there's, you can extrapolate some stuff forward, but ultimately it's unique enough. The variables are different enough. There's probably, things that we don't even know about that are happening that are going to be impacted by nutrition that a little bit of trial and error almost has to tease out if you even get to that point. Yeah. Uh, but can you talk to me a little bit about just like, what is it like, what are you doing to fuel your body and training uh, in recovery? And then ultimately in the project itself is there crossover from your, your nutrition during the training and stuff into the event itself, or does it have to change due to like the specifics that are different about being out on the ocean that long? Yeah, I'll start backwards and just start with the row itself is that there's almost no crossover. I mean, what you're eating out there is essentially crap like, <laughs> because by virtue of the fact that it has to last and stay on the boat for 30 days. So like I said before, 75% of your food is freeze dried. So it's, it's, it's not healthy. It's just calories. That's all it is. You're looking for calories. I mean, I wish I could balance out my macros out there, but I'm just not, you know, like I'm just not looking at it. I'm not, I'm not scanning with my phone, the barcode to be like, Oh, wow, that's high on carbs. I'm going to have to find some proteins and fats here. So, um, so, uh, you know, then the other 25%, yeah, nuts, dried fruit, that sounds healthy enough, protein bars, high in sugar, what are you going to do? Um, but that, that those are just, you're just, it's calories in calories out and you're running at such a calorie deficit. All you're talking about on the boat is how many calories did you get in? When guys are seasick and the other guys are trying to encourage them to eat more, even though he doesn't want to, he knows he needs to, they're talking about calories, get this many calories in, you know, because you kind of know how many you're going to burn on a row or in a day. So try to get this in. So that that's it at that point. So then you, you come back into the prepping. Yeah. Then it's a lot more, uh, you know, it is a lot more rigorous. I do balance out my macros and I am constantly, and like I said, our, our team nutritionists and doctors is constantly working on ways, but everyone's different. So for me, like I, my fat goes fast. I probably lose more weight, although I'm probably one of not the biggest guy on the team. I lose more weight than anybody. I lose the fat real quick. So I have to build that lean muscle mass, which is like that slow burning fuel that I'm going to have out there. So, you know, I look at my fat as kindling that'll, that'll only last that first week and then it burns off. And then I, I've got to have those bigger logs on the fire that are just going to be able to slowly be eaten away. And so for me, it's, it's, it's about building, building muscle and, um, and, and that comes through like balancing out my macros and without going into like, you know, how many grams of everything I, I say, I would say that, um, cutting out for me, you know, here, here's the things that like, I, I, I do like the vegetables and I love, I love the protein. Um, but I do eat meat. You know, some people don't, um, I, I definitely do. 
Um, and then my two biggest vices are, you know, I'm going to, I like sugar and, you know, like, and I'm going to like a whiskey on the weekends. And so, um, as I get closer to it, it's, what am I going to toss out? And whiskey's always the last to go by the way. So, <laughs> um, but then I, I cut out that sugar. So, um, you know, once I cut out that sugar and balance out my macros, um, along with the workout that I just told you about, I can build muscle maps really fast. And I also like to cut the fat. I like to train low with low fat. Like I, I can build that fat back up. I can put weight on pretty quickly. So I, I train lean. I train down at around, uh, two, to two ten, um, which is, would be lean for me at six, four. Um, and then as the, in the few weeks leading up to the row, I'll let myself kind of eat stuff that, that they'll put some weight on. And I try to build up to two twenty to two twenty five. Um, so, uh, really on the boat, it's just calories. It's nothing more special than that. I wish I had something. It was cooler than that, but it's not, it's very basic. I'm eating Mac and cheese, chicken and rice, these dishes, um, you know, um, they're, they're high in sodium. So you swell like crazy. Um, you're not drinking enough water. So, you know, you're even more swollen. And so, um, and, but when, when we're out here, when I'm training like that, it's really about for me, low carb, high fat, high protein, cutting out things like sugar for me. And, um, and then at the very end, I cut out the alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just interesting to hear because, uh, you know, for, I mean, endurance sport, I think when you get to Olympic distance stuff, it's like all, you know, a lot, especially at the high end level where, where a lot of people looking at moderate high carbohydrate stuff, then you start stretching it out to ultra marathons, multi-day stuff or something like you're doing where now you have multi-day stuff plus the logistical hurdle of having to have all your food on board, essentially in a nice, clean, tight package so it can fit and doesn't bog down your, your, your yeah. vessel. So like, to me, I'm interested because I've had a guy, Dr. Mike Nelson on the podcast a few times, and he's, he's like my go-to guy when it comes to just like metabolic flexibility and just this concept of being fat adapted or being carb reliant, and like based on context, where do you want to be on that spectrum? And, uh, with, with like what you're doing, I would think like being able to efficiently burn high levels of fat would be really something good to be able to do because of just the nature of how long you're out there. The, I'm guessing relatively low intensity that you have to kind of rely on with, uh, the length of your project, as well as the logistics of not being able to kind of have like, you know, a bushel of apples on the boat or whatever, whatever quick carbohydrate source you're going to be able to get from that. But, uh, so it sounds like you, you kind of trend that way. So you like use the back end of your training to kind of like increase your fat intake, lower your carbs a little bit, cut out some of the more processed stuff or the alcohol and the sugars and things like that. So that your body is getting a little more efficient at relying on body fat as a fuel source. Yeah. Body fat's big as a fuel source for sure. So that's what I, I try to let it eat away at, um, instead of just always wanting to go to the carb. And so I try to starve it of carbs for a while there. Um, and then of course, in those weeks leading up, just like the two or three weeks leading up, it's, it's, yeah, putting on that extra weight, but also not having anything in your system that's going to make you already more seasick than you are. So you could, you can imagine like what, what's still in your system when you get seasick. And by the way, it's going to hit you hard. Um, once you, once you get out there after the adrenaline wears off and we all get hit with seasickness. Some of us are nauseous and dizzy. Others are thrown up uh, off the boat, you know, every hour. So but you don't want to, you don't want to encourage that any more than, than you have to. So it's about just being eating clean and, and having your body when it is starving. And for that, for those first five days, you will not eat that much. So like, what does your body have that it can rely on? 
if it's used to getting carbs and all of a sudden you can't feed it carbs, like you do feel you, you, you then you feel you, you almost like you're, uh, as you're, you know, you're going through withdrawals almost. So you need to start from that. So it can just start eating from the fat and being okay. Um, for me, for seasickness, for me, I get nauseous, I lose an appetite and, uh, I, um, I get disoriented for sure. But for me, the best thing for me is to starve it out and let it just like write itself out. And then when it clears, it clears for me. Um, it just doesn't work for me to try to keep eating while I'm out there and then throwing up. And since I don't really throw up anyway, uh, it just sits right here and it feels awful. So I, I just, I have a system that's, uh, that I do. It works for me. It doesn't work for other people really, but I starve it out. My teammates that know me well say, let him go, like let him do his thing because in three days he's going to clear it. And then I'm going to, my appetite will come back and I'll be ravenous. So yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, you got to know yourself. And this, we go right back to the experience, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you haven't done this, how are you going to know how you're going to react and respond to this stuff? You know, I've done many of these now and I've, I, I know what I need to do and how my body works. So. Yeah. And I, th- the other interesting thing about just the uniqueness of what you're doing too, is if you get seasick, uh, it's like to force feed yourself through that and you end up just puking it up anyway. I mean, you just lost that nutrients for the most part. So it's like, you almost may as well wait and say, okay, now I have, I can back end these calories when my stomach comes back around and then actually be able to utilize it versus have it just end up in the side of the boat. Exactly. Or on, (laughs) on your, on your buddy, (laughs) which happens too, by the way, but like, yeah, I mean, also the other thing about getting sick off of food is if you are, you know, we don't have that many, flavors out there and if you had the chicken and rice and it got you sick you Uh, probably will not want chicken and rice for the rest of the trip like it's just going to trigger that so yeah i mean i have a vivid memory of on this last row and i'm I'm in the you know we're all seasick you know we're on day three or four this is the lowest everyone's going to be we know it's there nothing out of the ordinary is happening on the boat one guy's sick throwing up all the time you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay, but I'm, I've got no appetite. And I remember just that night I'm, I'm rowing with my teammate, uh, Duncan. And I just remember saying like, I need to stop here. I had a nature Valley bar. Like I'll never forget it. You know, those, that classic green wrapper. And I like, <laughs> I told him like, I'm going to try to eat this. And like, this was our, and he's like, all right, take, so take as long as you need. And I just sat there and like, just tried to get it down. Like so small. I mean, and it just, it just, my body was rejecting it, but I needed something. I needed some spike and something to get through this thing. I just, I just remember, like, it's probably a funny scene. Like, if it wasn't so like uncomfortable that I've got like my teammate, like who's also sick, like rooting me on. He's like, "You got this." Two more bites. It's like this little granola bar that you would eat right now on your desk without even thinking about it. And I'm just like, he's just like, he's like cheerleading me through this thing. And yeah. damn it, if I didn't get it down and kept it down, and it was like, okay, that feels good. And so. But I did want to try something like our rations, because if I got sick off it, I would say, oh, my God, I can never have that again. Whereas a Nature Valley bar, no big deal. So. That's so funny. I mean, that's a that's a common scene at aid stations and crew stops and ultra marathons where it's like you, you folks will get there and they, they know they need to get in some calories or something. And, you know, their stomach has gone on them and they're cruising. And they're like, well, try this, try that. And they're pulling out every trick in the bag. Like, Try this pickle juice. <laughs> yeah. They're just trying every cocktail. Like, yeah. Oh, that's too funny. But yeah, yeah. That I didn't even think of that though, too. If you lose like your, your tolerance for something. And I mean, that comes in different levels too. I remember when I was young, uh, after school, I'd come home and I would make like this buttered toast. And I, I probably did that for like 
a full semester or year. And then one day I got sick, like just typical flu, stomach flu, it had yeah. probably nothing to do with the butter toast. But the first thing I puked up was that butter toast. And for like a decade after that, just the thought of putting butter on toast made my stomach turn so much. I couldn't imagine trying to eat it, much less even think about it. So like yeah. some things just Something trigger it differently. Yeah. 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 That's why no one likes Jaeger. Yeah. That's funny. No, I was just thinking about dude, that, that. Those, those emotional triggers are real. Like I was like a nail biter in college. And then when I got to the elite team after college, I was still biting my nails and like, it's a habit I had my whole life. It's, it's, and, you know, whatever, everyone buys in that a lot of people do like, but it is like having your fingers in your mouth all the time. It's not good. And I like bit one down too close. I know this is probably like a lot of information, but it was a freezing practice in Philadelphia on the Schuylkill river. And I've bitten it down too close. I mean, this is where icicles are forming on the rigging of the boat and I had banged it and it was bleeding. And I was like, mother and i was so <laughs> like as if rowing isn't hard enough as it is and it's freezing i've got to have this thing and something sna- i got so i mean i like lost it in the boat no one noticed but in my head something snapped and i never bit my nails another day in my life like just on the breaking snapped. point yeah. it's not, and so it's like not like food but like to me now it just sounds gross to bite my nails whereas i had done it my whole life too something snapped so there are these emotional triggers i wish i could like harness that in for my other bad habits like ice cream on the weekends, you know, but I haven't figured out that one yet. So I can't remember what, if this is from like a movie or a TV show, but like way back in the day where like the, the parent catches their, their kid smoking a cigarette. He's like, well, smoke this whole pack. And then, Oh yeah. <laughs> and then never touch a cigarette again. Do you remember the, sh- do you remember the TV show King of the Hill? Cause that's yeah. what happened in King of the Hill. Is that what that's from? Okay. Yeah. I remember Bobby, you made, or I think it was like Bobby, like made his kid like smoke, like packets of cigarettes. So he was like blue in the face. And then like, yeah, yeah. So, that's like totally something my dad would do too, by the way. Like, he's yeah. like I think this is fun here. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to put a disclaimer on there. So take, take advice from this episode, but don't do the end part <laughs> yeah yeah don't know smoke smoking's bad you know <laughs> uh that's it's too funny yeah uh jason i think um we've covered a lot of stuff here uh i love all of it i think the uniqueness of what you're doing as well as just the application that folks can pull from this from the their day-to-day life really really stands out to me i like it when folks talk about what you mentioned with just the whole process of it. i mean we're looking at a 30-day project but at times you're thinking about the next 45 minutes. And when I think about people setting goals in lives or, you know, businesses setting goals and things like that, these, these grand end product goals are awesome. Like you getting to Hawaii after, you know, 30 days is this awesome motivator, but ultimately you got to make every step along the way count and find ways to have mini goals built into that. And it sounds like you very much do that. And I think that's something people can just pull from and do that, whatever it is they're doing, regardless whether it's going to be out on a boat in the ocean or just, you know, in an office or something like that. So I really appreciate your time and your willingness to kind of share kind of that procedure with, with me and the listeners uh, for, for HBO here today. No, I, no, I appreciate, I'm glad that you got that out of it too, because, you know, a lot of times when I'm speaking to my clients and they say, you know, uh, yeah, it's great, but you do these amazing things. Like I just work in procurement, you know, for this large organization and, 
But I, what I remind them is so much of what I do in a row is, is mundane. You know, I mean, just like you with your hundred miles, like the start line is amazing. And the finish line is amazing. That equals together 1% of the entire endeavor. You know, I mean, I had to take a million and a half strokes to get from San Francisco to Hawaii and they were stroke after stroke. And it doesn't matter whether it's hot or cold, dark or light, cloudy, or sunny, whatever it is raining on me. And it's so mundane. So you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more parallels, you know, than we think. And it's how do we break up the mundane to kind of make noble what it is that we are doing, you know? And I think that that's what people need to search for what it is that they're doing. If you're spending most of your life doing a job or working in a career, like how can you make that noble, that effort noble? Yeah. Maybe for me, it's a little more clear because I finish in Hawaii with everybody cheering for us. And maybe that's not what you're like in procurement, but I'll tell you what, there is something there, you know, and if there isn't, if you work and try to find that thing and you can't, then it's probably time to change jobs. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. it is. So anyway, I'm lucky to be able to do what I love, make a life out of it and be able to get on great shows like this here and be able to kind of share my thoughts. Appreciate Zach, all the like, background that you did on it and all, all kind of all the research and it makes me feel good. So thank you so much for making this productive. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know where they can find you too, whether it's website, social media, or anything else you have kind of coming up. Is there uh, some go-to spots? Yeah. I mean, you know, Instagram is a great place to go with Jason underscore T underscore Caldwell to just search Jason Caldwell and uh, start following me. We always put some cool pictures on there and we're always keeping everyone up to date. We also do some cool giveaways, um, you know, for anyone in, in business that's, you know, think about that they can learn from the organization can learn from some of the work that we're doing in the training and the consulting world, following me on our finding me on LinkedIn at Jason Caldwell is, is a great way too. And uh, you know, uh, we're, we're a small little organization here. So we'll reach out to you with any questions. I hope that if this solicits any other questions, she'll reach out because I'm always happy to answer for anyone who's curious enough to, uh, to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I'll put those links in the show notes for anyone who wants to reach out or follow along. I'm sure there'll be some epic adventures coming up in the future. So for sure, a a worth, worthwhile follow for sure. So, uh, find those links in the show notes. Uh, but thanks again for, for taking some time and coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey folks, just a quick reminder, this episode's sponsors include Inside Tracker's top-notch blood panel offerings for 25% off and Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium for 10% off and a 365-day money-back guarantee for all HBO listeners. If either of these products interest you or any HBO sponsors, links and details are in the show notes or at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.